Please be seated. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And uh, if you're with us tonight without a Bible, just flag one of the men coming up the aisles right now, and they'll get a Bible into your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please make that one a gift from us to you this evening. As we come and stop last time, Jesus is on the final night before his uh, crucifixion uh, for our sins. He is, has enjoyed the, uh, the Passover with his disciples. He has at that t- same time, as you remember, instituted the Lord's Supper and then informed the disciples that one of them would betray him. And all of them uh, denied that they would ever betray him, no one more uh, vocally than uh, Peter did. And uh, they made their way then from uh, the Mount of Olives. They crossed the Kidron Valley to the eastern side of, of Jerusalem. And uh, they came to a place, we're told in verse 32, where we pick it up tonight, came to a place which is called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, uh, sit here while I pray. The Garden of Gethsemane, the cross, of course, is really the height of uh, viewing the price that was paid for the forgiveness of our sins. Um, but what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane leading up to all of it gives us a glimpse at the price that he, uh, that he paid from a very important angle. When we look at the cross, uh, so often we look and we understand the uh, horrible, horrible physical price that he paid uh, to, in order to die on that cross and to provide us as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the forgiveness of sins. But here we see that the weight that was upon Jesus, the price that he paid in order for us to be forgiven of our sins went be, way beyond the physical. And that the physical really wasn't uh, uh, the highest uh, or the greatest area of suffering that he endured upon the cross. But what he went through emotionally, what happened spiritually to him on the cross, and we get glimpses of that here in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. And so Jesus takes them there to that Garden of Gethsemane. They're going to be there all through the night until the morning and when, when he is going to be arrested. I think it is Luke's gospel that tells us that this was a favorite uh, gathering place of the disciples uh, and Jesus during the course of his public ministry. So uh, when Judas is going to betray him, as we'll read in just a couple of moments, uh, Judas knew right where they would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had been there, they had talked there, they had prayed there, they had studied there. And uh, here is Judas using this intimate knowledge of Christ against him in that betrayal. But they had a long history uh, in, in the Garden uh, of Gethsemane, and that's where they uh, come to. I don't think that there could be a, a more appropriate place for what happens here in Jesus' life. It's almost, you know, as we study the Word of God and we realize what happened to him, uh, between him and God the Father in that Garden of Gethsemane, we just automatically associate it with the Garden of Gethsemane. But we realize that what happened there really, uh, it would just be so jarring in our mind if it happened in any other place. And the word Gethsemane means olive press. And it was where they would have these great stone troughs 
and they would put the uh, olives in and roll the great stones over them, pressing the oil uh, out of out of the olives into a container that, that would uh, take the olive oil as it would come out through the opening that was always provided in that. And so here is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is going to experience a tremendous pressing uh, upon upon his life as he, he, he considers, uh, you know, the cross that is coming the very next day. And, and they had, when they came to this place, which is called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, remember, Judas is now gone, there's just the eleven. And so he leaves eight of them there at, at some place within the garden. And then he took Peter, James, and John, three of, of the eleven with him, uh, deeper into the garden, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, I mean, it's such a picture of vulnerability in where, where he was. Where do we see him ever saying this to them uh, previously, opening himself up in this way? And he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. I don't know what were the physical manifestations of Jesus as it's, he's described as being troubled and deeply distressed. You don't have to shout out, it's a rhetorical question, but have you ever been uh, troubled and deeply distressed? And I mean, in a big way in life, it's a miserable place to be. It's a difficult, difficult place to be. And here's the Son of God, all God, all man, all at the same time, and this is what he's experiencing on the night before the cross. And so much so that he feels a need not simply to just keep it to himself, but he has a desire to share what he's going through uh, with others who are meaningful in his life uh, about what it is that he finds himself in the middle of. And so he, he expresses this to him. He's exceeding sorrowful, even to death. I mean, this is as deep as, as exceeding sorrowful can be. And he asked them to stay in the place that they had gone to and, and to watch. And so he leaves them there, the three. And then he went a little bit further into that garden, and then he fell on the ground. It doesn't say that he, you know, went down to his knees again. The, the, the weight, I mean, he's going to uh, not be able to carry his cross on the following day. Uh, but here, even under the weight of all of this that's happening spiritually, emotionally, and mentally in, in, in him prior to the cross, it's so heavy, he falls down to the ground and he prayed to the Father that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And here he is, his, his uh, humanity and his deity on full display. It is a mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifested in the flesh. That's all I know. I, I've heard uh, preachers try and uh, solve the mystery of Jesus' uh, humanity and deity put together in an explanation for it, and all they've, the best of preachers, all they've left me is just more confused than ever. I don't know where the lines begin and end 100%, 100% in terms of, of both of them, but clearly we see his humanity on, on full uh, display here, a sanctified humanity. And he prayed that if it were possible, 
that the hour of crucifixion uh, might pass from him. When he says, if it were possible, uh, it, it doesn't just mean uh, if it's possible to escape the cross. Uh, could I escape the cross? Uh, we know from the other Gospels that what he was saying is if it is possible uh, for man to be saved, then any other way than me dying upon that cross, then let this cup pass uh, from me. And Jesus is going to pray that prayer to the Father three times on that night in this place that he is in, and there is no answer. He ends up crucified on that cross at Calvary, and it was heaven's answer to the fact that there is no other way by which mankind might be saved. This is why it's a little bit frustrating for me. I'm a bit of a zealot in, in the, the deepest part of my heart, but when people uh, talk about uh, even Christians or liberal denominations and preachers are saying that you can be saved some other way or all roads lead and, and uh, you don't need to be born again and salvation isn't on the basis of faith solely in, in, in Christ and he isn't the only way, truth and the life. It's very frustrating for me. I wonder if they've ever studied the Garden of Gethsemane. If there was any other way, uh, Jesus would have never ended up uh, crucified. We know how much we love our own children. I don't know what it's going to be like that one day when we get into heaven and we see the love and the interaction within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it even begins to dawn upon us the price that, that the Father paid in even sending uh, His Son in order that, that He might uh, die for our uh, sins. And so, if it is possible that the hour might pass uh, from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He said, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not I, what I will, but what you will. And so, there is this, this cup. When it talks about the cup, it's worth certainly noticing, maybe even circling within your body, within your Bible. When Jesus says, take this cup from me, uh, he's using Old Testament imagery. And very often in the Old Testament, uh, even as we came out of the book of Jeremiah, before we came in, in Lamentations, before we came into the Gospel according to Mark, and, and into the book of Revelation, where uh, Israel and the nations were forced to drink the cup of God's wrath that their sin deserved. And so the cup represents... Not the physical suffering. Jesus is not trying to get out from under the physical suffering. The physical suffering that he is going to suffer the very next day pales in comparison to the single great thing that he wants to escape if there's any other way for us to be saved. And that is when he bore the sins of the entire world. And, and with the sins of the entire world, he bore all of the wrath that my sin and your sins and every human being who has ever lived, all of the wrath that our sin deserved, he bore that on the cross. 
And it's an incredible mystery. We, don't, we know that something happened on the cross where he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as he bore those, our sins for that latter uh, three hours of the six hours upon the cross before uh, he died, uh, we, uh, we know that there was a, a break of fellowship within the Godhead. Again, I won't touch it beyond that, a forsaking that occurred within the Godhead that had never happened before and would never happen again. Again, that is the cup. That is what Jesus is beseeching the Father for. If there's any other way than that man can be saved, not supremely the suffering in the flesh, but what will happen here, uh, then, uh, then uh, take this cup away from me, but then the surrender, nevertheless, what I, not what I will, but you will. And he surrenders even in the request, but surrenders to uh, the Father's will and all of it. And then he came, and uh, from his prayer and crying out uh, to, the, to the Father, he came to the three, and he found them sleeping. He had left them, told them to stay there and, and watch, and presumably to pray while they were watching. You would think that they would pray, seeing him in the condition that he was, that he was in, and he found them, them, them sleeping. It is the middle of the night now, and he said to Peter, evidently had woke the three of them up, and he speaks specifically to Peter, and he said, Peter, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he's going to find that out because he's going to deny the Lord after saying, no, I'm not going to deny you. And uh, uh, he might have done better if he had uh, spent some time praying rather than sleeping. But God knows uh, all of these things. And he went away the second time, and, and he prayed, and he spoke the same words, the same prayer that he lifted up uh, to the Father. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer. So he spoke to them about it again, and uh, they, I mean, what can you say about that? <laughs> you know, they, they didn't have any excuse that they could give to him. And then he came the third time, after he'd gone off to pray and found them sleeping again. And he said, are you still sleeping and resting? He said, it is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us rise and be going. Uh, see, my betrayer is at hand. We see the repetition of the betrayal. Uh, that is, is going on here. And, and even, he doesn't even use Judas's name here at this point. He, he talks about uh, the, the betrayer. He talks about being betrayed. Be, uh, betrayal is uh, one of the worst experiences we will ever experience uh, in life. And sometimes it happens within a marriage. Sometimes it happens in another relationship or whatever it might be. But a betrayal... Uh, is it, it, the, the pain of a betrayal is probably directly proportional to uh, the intimacy of the relationship. Uh, how we have opened up to that person over a course of time and then to have that intimacy, that knowledge now to be used against us or to be, to be betrayed. But the fact of the matter is, I, w I would contend that any betrayal that we have ever experienced in our life, and it's not to minimize the betrayal that we've experienced, but none of us have experienced uh, in a betrayal what Jesus experienced in the betrayal of Judas. 
Because when people betray us, they are betraying or sinning against imperfection. I mean, oftentimes we can give them a reason. They can find an excuse. There's never any good reason for it. But when they betray us, they are betraying imperfection. We're imperfect, imperfect human beings. And yet it's painful enough. Imagine being perfect. Imagine giving uh, uh, not one single person uh, that he was around ever a reason for betrayal at all. And then, and then to be betrayed. And, and this was the wound against Jesus' heart uh, on, on that night uh, before his crucifixion. And he then spoke to the disciples, woke them up for the events that were going to be occurring now, and uh, warned them now, the betrayer is at, is at hand. You wondered who he was, and now you're going to find out. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas one of the twelve. And again, that phrase, one of the twelve, is a damning statement against Judas. It is to say, Judas, in the light of the three and a half years of privileges that only eleven other people in human history ever experienced, seeing what he saw, hearing what he heard, all of this, the kind of intimacy of knowledge of Jesus that he had. I mean, it's, a, it, it, it's an awful responsibility. And Judas, one of the twelve, and not some riffraff, not some person that didn't know him or, or hated him, someone close. And he came with a great multitude uh, who were uh, armed with swords and clubs. And this multitude, uh, armed as they were, they came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The re- Jewish religious leaders had kind of like a religious uh, military force. And so Rome, of course, dominated uh, Israel and Jerusalem as well. They were uh, in charge of law and order there as they were in the entire Roman Empire. But in the area of the temple, they didn't really send their soldiers in unless they needed to because it could create an uprising. So they allowed the Jews to have their own military force and uh, under the oversight of of Roman authority. And it was this uh, religious military force or police force that was then dispatched now, armed in order to uh, arrest uh, Jesus. And they came from, uh, shamefully, uh, they came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It It is very ugly. Uh, religion can be very ugly, and when it becomes about money and it becomes about power, it, it, there's probably nothing uglier in the world uh, than that. And these guys are, uh, are, are poster children uh, for this, this awful, awful behavior and misrepresentation of God. Now his betrayer had given them a signal. Imagine that conversation. Now listen, this is how it's going to go, and I'm going to betray him. And, this is, and, and he said to them, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away uh, safely. And uh, you, would, you would think that, that, that they would hardly need a signal from Judas in order for Jesus to be identified and to be arrested. I mean, he, had, he was a fixture in Jerusalem during the feasts, and, and uh, they know who he was. But the religious leaders had dispatched this force. They weren't there in force. They were in another place waiting for Jesus to be brought to them that they might try him. It's also very, very dark. We kind of get used to having lights like this or street lights in our neighborhood. And this kind 
of thing where we can kind of make out someone's face even if it's in the middle of the night. There were none of these kind of things. And so uh, they wanted to know they got the right guy and didn't accidentally maybe grab Peter or one of the other disciples. This was a foolproof uh, way to do that. And he says, you'll know he's the one that I'm going to, uh, to kiss. You seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, uh, immediately uh, he went up to Jesus and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, teacher, teacher, and he kissed him. And so here we have the classic illustration of being betrayed by a kiss. The word kiss that's used there, interestingly, in the original language, it doesn't mean a single kiss. It carries the idea of smothering him with kisses. I mean, it's just really awful what uh, Judas does here. His heart is so far away from what he's doing outwardly. And what he was doing outwardly would be wonderful if the heart was in line with it, but it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't at all. It is an awful and ugly, ugly, ugly uh, betrayal. And then uh, they laid their hands on Jesus and they took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from John's Gospel that that was Peter. Remember, Mark was kind of a disciple of the Apostle Peter. And probably his gospel is very much what the Holy Spirit uh, kind of brought to his remembrance and brought forth supernaturally from the accounts of Peter related to uh, all of these things. He's very, very... Um, uh, polite to his mentor. He does not mention him by name. John didn't have any problem mentioning him by name, by the way, uh, in his gospel. Uh, nothing unsanctified about that. I'm sorry to have planted that in your heart. But uh, uh, Mark is protective of him here. It was Peter who is, pulls it out. And Peter pulls the sword out. And you remember, he said, I'll never deny you, though they kill me. I won't deny you. He's ready to defend Peter. Uh, Peter is to defend Jesus to the point of death uh, in that environment. But the interesting thing about environments like that, you've probably noticed this about your own Christian life. He's going to, Peter's going to end up denying him three times, just as Jesus said, though in this environment he's ready to go to death for him. And isn't it interesting how in certain environments we can be so bold and so strong and uh, ready to die in, in that environment, whatever kind of... Uh, things are coming together in that, that particular place. The problem is the consistency of it, having it consistently uh, mark our lives. And Peter is going to get in a different environment. And the environments where I think that we are probably most prone uh, to deny the Lord is not in some crisis where someone begins to blaspheme the Lord or, or whatever it might be, and we stand and we, we say, no, that isn't, uh, that isn't a, a proper understanding of who He is or what what he said, and, but the fall occurs so often in the more uh, normal, nitty-gritty of things, in, in, uh, uh, in, in smaller kind of environments and crises, and that's what's going to happen uh, with, with Peter. And Jesus answered and he said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. All of this in fulfillment of scriptures. But Jesus, in a beautiful, very sanctified way, he, lets, he, he speaks to them of their cowardice and their hypocrisy. Why do you come and do this? 
in the dark of the, of the, the dead of morning. Uh, if you have such convictions related to me, why don't do, you do it right in the middle of the temple, in the middle of the day? No, you come in the middle of the night and you do it in, in this way, uh, in a non uh, unpublic way, out of, out of cowardice. And he confronts them with it. And then all the disciples, as Jesus said they would, forsook him and they fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown uh, around his naked body, and the young men uh, laid hold of him as he's trying to flee apparently, and he left the linen cloth and he uh, fled from them uh, naked. This appears to be an autobiographical statement uh, concerning uh, Mark himself. And Mark was probably a young man at this time. It isn't unlikely that the upper room that was used for the Passover and instituting the Lord's Supper uh, was a, a, a room that was associated with his mother. And, uh, and perhaps he had been uh, within earshot of the events of that night. He's following from a distance across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane and then to this arrest. And as he leaves the house knowing something is up, uh, he grabs rather than his regular garments a linen cloth to simply uh, cover himself in the night. They grab it and he flees away uh, naked in all of this. And then they led uh, Jesus away to the high priest. Jesus faced two trials on the morning of his crucifixion, a religious trial uh, before the Jewish religious leaders, and then later uh, a, 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 a trial, political trial before Pilate. Here is the religious trial. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled the chief priests and the elders uh, and the scribes. And so they had gone out. They had said, now arrest him and bring him back here. The Jewish religious leaders were gathered now to try Jesus in order to find some accusation against him that was worthy uh, of his death. The whole deal is they're trying, uh, they want him dead. And they, 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 they want his ministry, his teaching to come to an end. It's too great a threat to their traditions and, and to their religion and, and their, uh, their uh, money-making operation that Judaism had descended into under their, their oversight. And so they are waiting there, all of the, the leaders of uh, the, the, the Jewish, uh, 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 Jewish religious leaders. Now, the, it is uh, helpful and I think important to realize that this trial that Jesus uh, faced before the Jewish religious leaders uh, violated all of the instruction in the law of Moses about such a trial. But these people, the law of Moses is to just be obeyed or disobeyed at their whim. This is, these, are not, these people are not serious about God. They're serious about themselves, but they've convinced themselves that it is about God. And, and, uh, and related to what uh, the law of Moses said and then uh, the teachings related to that that be, then became oral tradition and, and in the Mishnah and, and so forth, all criminal cases were to be tried only in the daytime, never at night so that everyone could see clearly the faces of the witnesses and the faces of, of the accused. They violate their own law in this regard. All trials were to be completed during the day. Again, they were not to occur at night. 
criminal cases were, uh, could uh, not be tried during any of the great feasts. Uh, this trial was occurring during the Feast of Passover. Only in a case where the verdict is not guilty could a case be finished on the very same day that it was begun. If there was a conviction of guilt related to any trial, uh, they could not be sentenced that very uh, same uh, day. Uh, the verdict, if it was a verdict of death on, in terms of a capital crime, there had to be at least one night that went passed by before the verdict was given and carried out in order for everyone who judged the case to be able to sleep on the situation and to make absolutely sure they weren't doing something rash or, or ill-informed. No decision of the Sanhedrin was valid unless it occurred in its own meeting hall, the hall of the hewn stone, which was located in the areas of the temple. This occurs uh, at the house of one of the Jewish religious leaders. All evidence had to be guaranteed by two uh, witnesses. Any false perjury was punishable by death. You would put to death anyone who lied in such a trial. They're going to have a whole string of people lying here in just a moment with no consequences to it, uh, to it at all. And every single trial that occurred before the Sanhedrin, it was to begin with a presentation for all of the evidence of the innocence of the accused. And Jesus is never allowed uh, to, to bring uh, that, that forth. And uh, every single individual member of the Sanhedrin was to vote for uh, the death or the sentence of an individual if they were sentenced to death individually, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest. It was never to be a mob scene. It was never to be what this, uh, this trial uh, turned into. And they violated every one of these laws in their trial uh, of Jesus. That's how eager they were to silence his voice and, and end his ministry. It's, it, is, it was a mockery of justice, and they knew it. And anyone that was a part of it would have recognized uh, the circus that they had turned it into. They were looking for any reason uh, to end his life. But Peter, as all of this is going on, and Jesus is taken in, into uh, the place where all of the religious leaders are assembled, Peter followed Jesus at a distance. And he followed right into the courtyard of the high priest. And here you have, uh, if you've never heard a sermon on, uh, you know, denying Christ. And Peter is an example. Uh, everybody ought to hear it. And uh, there's always the steps that are taken. And I, and I find that the Lord reminds me of these, not on a daily basis, but periodically as I, I have need. And the denial always begins with following Jesus afar off. And we can allow that to just search my heart and your heart tonight. Are we following the Lord from afar off? Uh, then it did not, we're well on our way on a path where we will end up denying Him. And then uh, He sat with the servants, and uh, as He made His way into this courtyard, probably a very large group of people assembled there in, in the courtyard of the priest. It could have probably accommodated uh, a couple of hundred people easily. There's the excitement of the arrest. There's a lot of people that are there. It is in the springtime of the year. The sun hasn't come up yet, 
and, uh, and it could be very, very cold. And so a fire was lit there, and he warmed himself at the fire. And the danger here, the second step of warming ourselves at the fire of our enemies. It's always a bad progression, and it plays out over and over and over again. And, and uh, we'll be no more successful than Peter in resisting it if we take to take that path. Am I warming? Are you warming yourself at the fire of God's enemies tonight? In fellowship with them, found yourself in a comfortable place uh, with them, no longer being salt and light, but being uh, about what they're about around those fires. And the chief priests and all of the council, they sought testimony against against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Again, the law required that uh, every fact uh, had to be established on the basis of two two or three eyewitnesses. Otherwise, no one was to be sentenced on the basis of one person saying something against another person. Uh, uh, there had to be uh, two or more eyewitnesses. And so this is what they're trying uh, to establish. And uh, for many on this whole mad scene uh, that's going on here, many bore false witness against him. The only witness you can bring against Christ is false witness. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. So they were useless for what the religious leaders were trying to establish. But they didn't give up. And then some rose up, and they bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. And uh, they take something that Jesus said, something like that early in his ministry. In John's Gospel, chapter 2, Jesus did declare, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was not talking about Herod's temple. He was not a threat to Herod's uh, temple. Herod's temple would be destroyed the way God had prophesied that it would be destroyed. He was talking about the temple of his own body, that he would be crucified, and, and, uh, that, but that he would raise it up in three days, speaking of his own, his own resurrection. But they take this and they try to make his teaching sound as if he's a threat to Judaism, he's a threat to the temple, and, uh, but even, uh, not even then did their testimony agree. And then finally the high priest stood up uh, in the midst and he asked Jesus saying, Do you answer nothing? Uh, what, it, uh, what is it that these men testify against you? And so Jesus is sitting absolutely silent in the face of all of it. I mean, it is a, a scene of, of madness. And, and he sits just quietly, the picture of peace. in in all of it. And he kept silent, and he answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And then finally, someone in that room asked Jesus a question that is worthy of being answered. And he breaks his silence on the basis of that. And here is the high priest asking Jesus, Are you the Jewish Christ? Are you the Messiah? And not only that, but are you the Son of the Blessed? That is the Son of God. Are you divine? And Jesus then answered that question, and He said, I am. Nothing mistakable about that. 
Sometimes you have even Christians saying that Jesus never declared himself to be divine in the Gospels. I don't know what Gospels they are reading. Here is one of many examples of it where he declared himself to be divine. I am both Messiah and the Son of God. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power that is of God and uh, coming with the clouds of heaven. And so he declared himself to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God. And he told them in essence that whether they chose to believe it or not, one day they would see it in, uh, with their own eyes. In other words, you will see me, as you see me right now, you see me in the humiliation of this moment. You see me in the humiliation of this scene and of this human body, but one day you're going to see me and all of my glory sitting at the right hand of the Father. What an awesome thing that Jesus told them. And he's predicting it, not only his resurrection, but he's predicting his ascension on the other side of whatever it is that they have on, in mind on that morning. And as he also declared to them, coming with the clouds of heaven, you crucify me, but that's not going to be the end of me. I, uh, you, uh, I, uh, uh, this is not the end of your problem concerning me. This, your problems are only beginning concerning me because I will come again with the clouds of heaven. The reaction of the high priest is there. He tore his clothes. This is all nonsense. Get him an Oscar. Get him an Emmy. Uh, Whatever. He he has no... uh, This is just feigned indignation. He's just looking for a reason to uh, reject Jesus and find a cause for him to be uh, crucified. But he believes Jesus, declaring himself to be the Christ and the Son of God, that he's committed blasphemy and, uh, and, and worthy of death. And so he says, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. Ah, what some people consider blasphemy is music to the rest of our ears. And that's the truth concerning uh, Jesus. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? I don't think it's blasphemy. I think it's wonderful but he was posing it to a different uh, audience. And they all condemned Jesus to be uh, deserving of death. Again, the continued violation of, uh, of, uh, of their own uh, laws concerning a trial. But they weren't done. Uh, it, but before we move into what they began to do with him physically, I, I do think it's important to look at the end of verse 61 that, that when the, the high priest says to Jesus, are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. That's a fascinating question, two questions that the high priest asked Jesus there. And, And here we have the recognition on the high priest's part that the Messiah would also be the Son of God as opposed to what is now the mainstream in, in Judaism in terms of a view of Messiah in, in the Jews today, that Messiah would not be divine uh, and will not be divine, and, but that he would be merely a man. And it's interesting, there, there are indications in the Talmud as well as in, in the writings of the uh, ancient Jewish scholars in, in Qumran, that religious community from the time of Jesus. 
And that Qumran is the location where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered some uh, decades ago. Uh, that, and there's the indication that in ancient Judaism, that there were those who looked at the Jewish Scriptures the way that we look at them and we understand them uh, today. And they understood that they spoke clearly of Messiah being the very Son of God. And, and they believed this uh, from several scriptures in the Old Testament. One of them would be Psalm 2. Allow me to read it to you, uh, a little portion of it. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set, themse uh, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That is speaking of the Messiah. The very thing that's happening in this scene that we're looking at. And here is this rebellion of man against not only God, but against His anointed Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And here is the reaction of God. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. You, think, you wonder whether God laughs? You wonder whether He has a sense of humor? Yes, He laughs at the rebellion of man against Him and His ways and the idea that it could ever be successful. And he, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath, and distress them in his great displeasure. And he declares, yet I have set my king, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, on my holy hill at Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. And here is what the Father says concerning the Son in the psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then here it is once again in Psalm 2. For anyone to read, Jew or Gentile, Kiss the Son, speaking of the Messiah, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in the Lord. And there was a time where there was a, sec a community within Judaism that recognized that these verses had to mean that the Messiah would be, uh, also be uh, the very Son of God. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 3, for you if you take notes, is an interesting passage in this regard. Again, many that we could go to on it. Allow me to read this to you as well. He said, Who uh, the Proverbs 30, verse 4, Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a, in a garment? Who has established uh, all the ends of the earth? And he's clearly talking about God. And then he answers, he goes on and he says, What is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? There's a Calvary pastor that I know uh, who uh, told me one time he was on a trip to Israel and, uh, and his driver, a Jewish driver and the Jewish guide were not uh, Christians. 
and they began to uh, talk about the issue of how the Old Testament Scriptures speak to the fact that the Messiah would be the Son of God and be divine. And he showed them Psalm 2 and elsewhere, but he quoted this uh, verse to them. And they got back onto the bus, and as they were going to the next site, uh, they huddled there on the bus and, and uh, read it in their Hebrew Bible, and they turned uh, over to him and, and said to him, it is in the original language, it is stronger than even you realize. It's there. It's there uh, for the person who wants to, to, to see it. And so this powerful statement, why would the high priest make this except this was a view of the Messiah uh, in those days, a view that has changed uh, over time, uh, but, but should not have changed over time. And then they begin to mistreat him in verse 65, and uh, some <clears throat> began to spit uh, on him and to blindfold him. And again, the prophecies of the Old Testament, speaking of the Messiah being spit upon, and to being, and they blindfolded him, and they began to, to beat him. And of course, if you've got a sack over your head, you don't know where these punches are coming from. You have no way of defending yourself. It's no wonder that Isaiah declared that by the time these religious people got done with him, and then the Romans got done with him, that he was not even recognizable as a human being. You would have never known it was Jesus hanging on that cross. Uh, his face was so bloodied and so uh, marred and swollen and, and bruised. And they began to beat him. And then not only the spitting, which is just the highest expression of just indignation. I mean, it, it, the, the, the worst the demeaning thing that you can do to another person, disrespectful thing. And they, uh, they, they uh, then began to beat him, and then as if that wasn't enough to mock him, saying, prophesy. The idea is, if you're the Son of God, then tell us right now, uh, which one of us is hitting you across the head and across the, the face in their scorn and in, in their mocking? And the officers then, <clears throat> they came in when the religious leaders got tired apparently, and they struck him as well with the palms of their hands. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself there by the fire, she looked at him and said, I mean, if you're going to warm yourself by the fire uh, of uh, Jesus' enemies, then you better be ready to stand for him uh, or you'll end up denying him. And that's exactly where, uh, where he is. And she looked at him and said to him, you were with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it. And he denies it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. He pretends that he doesn't even know who Jesus is. He just, it's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And this is one of the apostles. This is the apostle <clears throat> Peter here. And he went out uh, on a porch and a rooster crowed. Jesus said that he would deny him before, uh, three times before the cock crowed twice. So here is the first time. And then the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, I mean, he, she wasn't successful on her own, so she draws everybody else in. It's a big crowd. I mean, it's a, it's a volatile situation. Peter's in the middle of. And she, she uh, accuses him and says, uh, this is one of them. 
But he denied it again a second time. And a little while later, those who stood by said to Peter, Surely you are one of uh, them, for you're a Galilean and your speech uh, shows it. And just like in our country where if somebody comes from Boston or they come from the South or Georgia or Alabama or whatever, we know that they've come from another part of the United States or were raised there. The same thing was true in Israel. They recognized a, a, a Galilean accent, an accent from the North, and that Peter had it. And what would a Galilean be doing down here around this fire in Jerusalem uh, unless he's somehow associated with Jesus the Nazareth? Uh, the, of Nazareth, from uh, Nazareth being in, in the Galilee. And then he began to curse and to swear. And I, I, don't think, I, I definitely don't think that Peter began to use profanity at all. It is interesting to realize that in the Hebrew, there are no, uh, there are no swear words in the Hebrew language. When a Jew wants to curse, he's got to use American words. Uh, they, they, it just does not exist within within their language. So he's, he's not dropping down to that level. It's talking about the fact that when he began to curse and swear, he began to declare that if what I'm telling you isn't true, may I be cursed of God. I swear to God that this is the truth uh, concerning me. And then notice what he says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Doesn't even use his name. Doesn't even use his name. The enemies of Christ referred to him as this man. And Peter refers to this Jesus that he'd been with for three and a half years as this man whom you speak. And then at that moment, I mean, that is low, low, low. I don't, I don't speak it to, like, to, to bury Peter. There's a happy ending here. But just for how low we can go when we get in the wrong place and in the wrong situation. And then even to realize that when we have failed or we have denied Christ, that it's never the end, end of the story. We never surprise God. We surprise ourselves on a continual basis. But we never, ever surprise God in that uh, regard. Remember, Jesus spoke to Peter and he said, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. But when you've... Uh, but I've prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen the brethren. He knew he was going to deny. He knew he was going to fail. But there was an afterward to it. And I think that that failure, Peter learned from it. And it was a part of him becoming the, the apostle that we know and we love uh, later on in, in, uh, uh, as, as his life and his ministry continued to unfold uh, beyond this chapter. But something very, very important was happening in his life at this point in time. And when all of this occurred, verse 72, the, the second, a second time, the rooster crowed, and then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he realized, and when he thought about it, and he realized that he had done exactly what he vowed was he was incapable of, he began to weep. And the word that is used for weeping there isn't begin, you know, like some dribbling of tears down his eyes. This is a weeping that uh, affected his entire body. He just, I mean, I hope I'm not the only one who's ever failed the Lord. 
and felt in some measure what Peter felt in this scene. It's an awful place to be, a terrible, terrible place to be. But for Peter, and I'm convinced for many, many others, maybe uh, most of us, this was an important chapter in his life. When he had declared, as we saw last week, Jesus prophesying that they would all deny him and he would be left alone. And though they all deny you, I will not deny you. Though they kill me, I will not deny you. And he is a picture of confidence and, and, and of, of boldness and conviction and determination. But none of those things, none of those things will give us what we need in order to stand for God in environments like this or in the environment of the apartment complex we live in or the neighborhood or the place that we work in or the family that we are a part of. And what Peter needed to realize, and all of them would learn it, but he needed to realize it more than anyone else, was he needed to realize that this Christian life can never be lived victoriously on the basis of determination and self-confidence, no matter how much determination and self-confidence we have. It cannot even be lived on the basis of how much we love God. And Peter loved God. No one would ever cast any doubt upon that. He wouldn't weep if he didn't. But even a love for God won't give us what we need to stand in those, these kind of environments. And then, of course, we see an entirely different Peter on the other side of all of this on the day of Pentecost when what happened? When the disciples and Peter himself and the 120, 120 that were up in that upper room were baptized in the Holy Spirit as Jesus had declared that they would in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and give you power to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And Peter would not be perfect the rest of his life as an apostle, but he would never be this again. And he learned the difference between trying to do this in our own strength and trying to do it, live this Christian life in the baptism and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And I know all about it in my own life. I was raised for, in my youth, I was raised in a, for a period of time in a church that had a very, very high view of the Word of God. And it, and it planted that in my life. I, I love those people to this day, and, and I love that church, and I love the respect for the Word of God and the reverence for the Word of God that they possessed and was imparted to me by their uh, example. But what, where there was a, what I would consider to be kind of a negligence, and it, it, negligence is too strong of a word, um, a failure uh, uh, to, to offer what is fully needed in order to live for God is the person in the, in the work of the Holy Spirit, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so, as a youth, my, I had this high view of Scripture, 
and this is God's Word, and this is what it says, and this is who I am to be. But then I attempted to obey it in my own strength, and I failed, and I failed, and I failed, and I failed, just like Peter did. And then, and that was an, a numbskull for sure, so I'm not blaming anybody, but I do remember walking into a Calvary chapel uh, several years later when I realized I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. And, uh, and in that particular place, even then I would listen to the Word of God because it was a church like this, a high view of Scripture. And for a while I just would come, uh, uh, you know, to the services and I would hear the Word being put out and this is what God says we're to be. And then I would endeavor to do that uh, again on my own and was having no more success than, than I had previously. And then somewhere in the whole wonder of all of it, somebody began to talk to, and, and it was my wife's experience as well, talk to us about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. What do you mean the Holy Spirit and what? And the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then it, it, it produces this, and you can be refilled, and it was, it was things that, that I never knew before in my life. And everything then changed with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm no, I'm no more perfect than Peter was following the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it introduced a power into my life now, giving me the, the power to live the life and obey what I see in, in the Scriptures. And without being baptized with the Holy Spirit, asking God, saying, God, Jesus, you said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that we can be baptized with your Holy Spirit, receive the power to be a witness to you anywhere we are in the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And Jesus, you said in Luke 22, that if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And to just ask and say, God, would you fill me with this Holy Spirit, the fullness of your Spirit. I know He's in me because I'm born again, but I need the Holy Spirit upon me now so that I don't live in a, in a constant state of weeping over my own failures as a Christian. And Jesus never gives an invitation that He doesn't supply that. Uh, he won't then keep that promise and I know that this is familiar territory for many of us in this room, but it's worth it to me to take ten minutes to talk about it tonight for two, three, five in the room that have never heard it. And their whole Christian life is the portion of Peter here, and everything can change for you tonight by being baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'll be up in front after the service. Other pastors and other men and women will be up here after the service, and we'd love to pray with you for that fullness of the Holy Spirit uh, upon your life. And it's that that changes and moves Peter out of this horrible, horrible place of being determined. I want to. There's no way. I would never deny you. I love you. I would die for you. And then before the night is over, we have shocked ourselves in what we're capable of and disappointed ourselves and condemned and weeping. And the solution to it is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer for this evening. Concerning the baptism with the Holy Spirit, we'll be up here to pray with you and for you.